You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. If you're a parent, if you're a mother and you're here this morning, then you have struggled over a selection of a perfect name for a child. We understand how important naming your child is, and we understand all that is wrapped up in a name, because our name, contained in our name, is all that we are, all that we have been. Our reputation is attached to our name. A name dignifies or signifies the earthly family that you come from and the history of that earthly family. And a name also will conjure to our minds negative or positive connotations. Names like Lincoln, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Moody, Spurgeon, Whitfield, Edwards, Calvin, Luther, all of those names carry with it a whole history, a whole, uh, a whole package of emotions and feelings, either positive or negative for you. And our names are just like that. Contained in our name is our identity, our integrity, our character. We are associated with our name, and a name is inseparably attached to the individual that goes by that name and bears that name. And when we're looking for a name for our children, we try to avoid names that will conjure up in our minds something negative. No thinking rational person in this day would name their child after Hitler, Stalin, Marx, Saddam Hussein. You wouldn't name your son Uday or Kusay. You wouldn't do that because packaged with those individual names are all of the negative connotations that come with it for us. On the other side of the ocean, for some there's all kinds of positive connotations that come with that. But for us, they're negative connotations. We'd never use those names to name a child. And when you're looking for a name for a child or trying to think up one, you've probably been in this situation where one parent will suggest a name and the other parent doesn't like that because the name reminds them of somebody they went to school with who knew a person who did something and to even mention that name brings up all the negative connotations with it. Have you ever been in that situation? And so you haggle over names until you can find one particular name that has no negative connotations for either one of them that you like And then you start to tell your friends and they kind of cringe at the suggestion of that name because that name reminds them of something negative. Or you try and avoid naming your children something that is going to be easily mocked by all the other kids in school. You rhyme the name in order to avoid offering a silly rhyme to their schoolmates. You don't want to name them something that's going to be easily mocked. Something that, that was never considered when I was named Jimmy Osmond. Nobody ever thought that through. So I was Jimmy Osmond. I used to get on the school bus and people say, sing us a song, Jimmy Osmond, because they associated me with the Jimmy Osmond, uh, with the D on the end, with the Osmond brothers, the Osmond family. So I was easily mocked because of my name. I prefer anything to Jimmy, Jim, James, hey you, anything but Jimmy, because of the connotations with that. And that's the way it is with the name. And that's the way it is in the New Testament with the name. And Scripture places a lot of emphasis on names all the way through the Bible. From Adam all the way through to the end of the New Testament, names have a significance. Names carry a meaning. Names have a a built-in connotation that goes with the name that we associate with it. And when God decided 
to come into our time, our space, on earth, in a body, in the person of Christ, He chose His own name. Remember, the angel appeared to the Joseph and said, You'll name, you shall call His name Jesus. Why? Well, Jesus means Savior. You shall call His name Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. And He chose His own name. And in the New Testament, the name of Christ is the name. That is the central name. That is the name at which every knee shall bow. That is the name which is exalted above every other name. Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, God was jealous of His name. He called His people to honor His name, to glorify His name, and to live as holy people in order that His name might not be blasphemed. In the New Testament, we have all of these names of Christ. Someone once tabulated between the Old Testament and the New Testament how many different names the Lord Jesus has. Conservative figure was 200, over 200 different names. Listen to some of them. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He is the Beloved. He's the Bread of Life, the Bright Morning Star, the Firstborn from the Dead. He is called the Holy One, Emmanuel, God with us, Lamb. He's the Light of the World, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. He is Lord. He is Lord of Lords. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Man of Sorrows. He's the Mighty God. He's the Prince of Peace, the Righteous Judge, and the Root of David. He is Savior, Servant, Shepherd, Son of God, Son of Man, and Word of God, among others. All of those names that He's given. And each one of those names has a significance. And in the New Testament, as the apostles who preached the name of Jesus, healings were done in His name, as we saw last week. In His name there is forgiveness of sins. Philippians chapter 2 says, At His name every knee will bow. It's His name that we are to glorify. It is His name in which we are to preach, pray, and do all things in His name, in the name of Jesus. We're to work in His name, serve in His name, love in His name. Everything that we do is connected with the name of Jesus. And since the name is so central to everything in the New Testament, it should not surprise us that the name is at the heart of the conflict and the controversy that raged between the early Christians and the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. And that's what brings us to Acts chapter 3. I hope you have your Bibles there. Acts chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the first part of Peter's sermon. The name of Christ becomes the central idea, the central focus of Peter's second sermon that he delivers in the temple, hot on the heels of having healed this lame beggar who was at the beautiful gate that we looked at last week in verses 1-10. through So this miracle has been done, and now there is this controversy. And the controversy is not over the miracle. The controversy is over the name. Do you remember up in verse 6, Peter said to the beggar, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And now what I want you to do is to let your eyes just sort of sift down over chapter 3 and chapter 4 and glance at these references to the name. And look how central the name of Christ becomes to this whole episode. Chapter 3, verse 6, Peter said, in the name of Jesus the Nazarene, walk. Then Peter has the opportunity to preach, which he takes. Down in verse 16, he says, On the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man. After his sermon, Peter and John are arrested. They're imprisoned. And the next day, they're brought out. And they're brought before the council in Jerusalem. Down in chapter 4, verse 7, When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire of them. That's Peter and John. 
By what power or in what name have you done this? Now they knew the answer to that question. That's why they asked it that way. In whose name did you do this? And they're waiting for Peter and John to incriminate themselves. And Peter says down in verse 9, If we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. Then down in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Well, they can't argue with that. They can't argue with the fact that a miracle has been done. So what does the leadership do? They determine to release them. But before they do, they warn them. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. Verse 18, And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. Then they release Peter and John. Peter and John go back to their companions and they have a prayer meeting. And at the end of chapter 4, verse 30, Peter prays, while you extended your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. See how the name becomes central to the whole conflict? The issue is not the miracle. It's the name. They can't get over the name. They hate the name. And it's the name that is the whole central idea of Peter's sermon. And we're going to look at the first half of the sermon today. And we're going to see that as Peter begins to preach Christ on this occasion, using the occasion of this miracle to present the Gospel, Peter focuses on four things. We're going to look at them two today and two of them next week. The first thing that Peter focuses on is the power by which the miracle was done. The power of Christ. So he says in verse 11, while he, was, while he, that is the beggar who had been healed, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you, are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at this as if by our own power or piety we made him well? Now the first thing I want you to notice, and this is just sort of preliminary background, there's a difference between the first sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in the second sermon that Peter preached, this one that we're going to begin looking at today, which starts in verse 11. The difference is this. In the first sermon, the subject matter is all that Jesus Christ did. In the second sermon, the subject matter is all that Jesus Christ is. The first sermon is His work. The second sermon is, who is He? The first sermon deals with what He did. The second sermon deals with who He is. So in the first sermon, the resurrection is the central theme. And in the second sermon, the resurrection is mentioned too because you can't preach without mentioning the resurrection if you're going to present the Gospel. So the resurrection is central, but the focus is a little bit different. When they gathered together on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, this is what He has done. He has died, He has risen again, and He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and He's coming again in judgment. That is all of the redemptive work of Jesus. The second sermon is not so much about what he did, although it's there, but it is about who he is. Because the question for these Jews is, who is this individual by whose name this man has been healed? Who is he? Why is the name significant? That's the issue. So Peter doesn't really address what it is that he's done. The central focus of everything is, who is this man in whose name this beggar has been healed? Who is the man? What is it about him that makes him unique? And why is he able to give power to heal the lame? That's the question. Now there's a similarity between both of these sermons. 
One of them is the resurrection, but there's another similarity. It's the pattern that Luke is using. Remember how the first sermon, the occasion for the first sermon came about? The supernatural elements, the rushing wind, the speaking in tongues and all of that. They were confused. They didn't understand all of that. They said, well, what is this? These men are are drunk. They're drunk with new wine. So Peter stands up and he corrects that misunderstanding and he uses the occasion of this miraculous event in chapter 2 to preach Christ. The same thing in chapter 3. There's the miraculous event. Both sermons are preached in the temple, by the way. The second sermon has as its basis this miracle has happened. And so Peter senses the opportunity to preach Christ and he's ready in season and out of season and the opportunity comes and Peter's ready with a message. And so he launches into this message as the people glom around him. Now look at what Peter says. Remember how the beggar came running into the temple? We covered that last week. It's the hour of the sacrifice. It's the hour of prayer. Everything is quiet. Everything is solemn. Everything is contemplative. And outside, while the priest is preparing the sacrifice, Peter and John are entering the temple and they see the beggar. And Peter looks at the beggar and he says, look at us. And the beggar looks up and Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I'll give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And he reaches down and he grabs the beggar and lifts him up. And Luke says, immediately his feet and his ankles are strengthened. And having no need to learn how to walk, he stands up, he jumps up, he begins leaping and praising God and walking into the temple with Peter and John. Probably the first time he'd ever been into the temple because he is a cripple and there are certain parts of the temple that he wasn't allowed into. And he comes in during that quiet, solemn time, leaping, jumping, praising God, disrupting the whole sacrificial service, drawing every eye to himself. And Luke says in verse 11, read it with me, he was clinging to Peter and John. That's what you do when somebody has given you something of that value. You cling to them. You can imagine this guy hugging them, hanging on them, not wanting to let them go, grabbing them and dragging them over to his friends. Look what he's done. Just clinging and glomming on to Peter and John. And so what happens, verse 11, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon. Large area in the temple, set off with these large rows of columns, three rows of columns that had a cedar paneled roof on it. Very large area. Solomon didn't build it. Didn't build it. It was named after Solomon. And a large enough area for several hundred, maybe a thousand or more people to gather together. The Gospel of John records Jesus going into that same area and doing teaching and, and preaching with the people and reasoning with the people, the portico of Solomon. So that's where they gather. And all the people are, are running there and gathering together with Peter and with John at the portico of Solomon. And they're in amazement. And Peter sees this and he replies to the people. And what the people have done is, I think, they have recognized that a miracle has been done. They have run to the place where Peter and John are at. And Peter sees this. And the first thing he does is correct a misunderstanding that they have. Why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own piety or our own power we've made this man well? The fact that Luke records the people were running there to them indicates to me that they were beginning to love and honor the messenger, Peter and John. They had done the miracle. And that, my friends, is a typical response, is it not? We honor and exalt and lift up the messenger, the one who brings the message. In Acts chapter 14, it's recorded of Paul and Barnabas that they went into a city of Lystra. And there was a man there who was lame from his mother's womb in both his feet. Very similar miracle. And Paul says to him, stand upright and walk. And the man does so. 
And all of the people in Lystra, Acts chapter 14 says, begin to say in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us and become like men. They think Paul and Barnabas are gods because they have this ability to make this man walk. And so all of the people from the temple begin to rush out with oxen and garlands and they begin to praise and offer worship and they're getting ready to sacrifice animals to Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes and say, no, we've come here to turn you away from these vain things. But what did the people do? A miracle had been done in their midst. And rather than recognize the God who gave them the ability to do that, they instead honor the man or the men. I think that's what they're doing with Peter and John. They're running into the portico. They recognize that these men have done something for this beggar. They maybe do not understand it completely. And Peter says, why are you amazed at this? That's kind of a mild rebuke. The Lord does a miracle. Why should that amaze you? I mean, you've come here to the temple today to worship your God, have you not? And if this God whom you worshiped, who parted the Red Sea, who brought His people into the wilderness, fed them for 40 years from manna from heaven, brought them into the promised land, conquered the promised land, raised up the kings, the God who has spoken through His prophets, who claims to be the Almighty, Omnipotent God, the All-Powerful, Almighty One, if He should decide to perform a miracle in your midst, why does that surprise you? But the people are amazed. They shouldn't have been amazed because of the power of God. They also shouldn't have been amazed because they were the very ones who had seen Jesus Christ Himself perform miracles right there in Jerusalem. And they had witnessed that. And they had heard about it. But yet they're shocked. How often are you shocked when God does something awesome in your life? It just amazes you, doesn't it? Should it amaze us? No. When God provides something incredible for us or blesses us unbelievably or does something that only He can do and we're shocked by it. We shouldn't be shocked by it. But we are. And Peter says, why is this amazing to you? And then he says, why do you look at us as if by our own power or our own piety we had made this man walk? And Peter wants them to understand something. It's not us. You guys are looking at the wrong people. Peter's saying we don't have any power. We don't have any ability. We don't have anything that's in and of ourselves that would be able to give us the ability to make this man walk. We have nothing to offer this man. If it were not for Christ, and if it were not for the Spirit of God, if it were not for Almighty God, Peter could stand at the temple gate and say, stand up and walk, and he could say that all day long. And the man would not be able to walk. But it's not his own piety, it's not his own power, but it's Christ. And that's the first thing that Peter wants them to understand. It's not our ability. You're looking to the wrong person. So he takes that opportunity to point them past Peter and John to Christ. It's not our power. It's the power of Christ. Well, Peter and John, if it's not your piety and it's not your power, if it's not your godliness, it's not your ability that made this man walk, then whose is it? I'm glad you asked. The second thing that Peter focuses on is the person of Christ. Beginning in verse 13. Peter says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. It's a very Jewish way of describing God. He's speaking to Jews in the Jewish temple. And what he's reminding them of is this. It is the God that you worship, the God who made a covenant with this nation, the God who built this temple, the God whom you have come to this temple today to worship. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, the God of Moses, the God of David, the God who is our God. Peter doesn't want them to think that he is worshiping Another God, he's not an idolater, he's not a polytheist, but he's worshiping the God of the Old Testament, their God. 
And it is He who has glorified, Peter says in verse 13, His servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who has glorified His servant. And when Peter refers to Christ as servant, he stands in a long line of Old Testament prophets who look forward to and described Christ in those very terms, particularly Isaiah, who beginning in verse 42 of his book, Isaiah chapter 42, he contrasts the coming Messiah as the servant of God who would do all that Israel and Judah had failed to do. They were not obedient. They did not glorify God. They went after other gods. But Isaiah says the Lord is going to send His servant, the root of David, descendant of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Messiah, He's the servant of God, who will perfectly obey the Father and fulfill all of His will. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And that's exactly how Jesus described Himself. Matthew chapter 20, Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He's the servant. So it's a messianic title. He describes Him as His servant, Jesus. Two different names, notice so far, two different names given to this one that Peter's preaching. Servant, which identifies Him as the Old Testament predicted prophet and Messiah that Isaiah predicted. It's Him who is going to come in verse in chapter 53 of Isaiah and bear all of our sins and our iniquities by whose stripes we would be healed. He was the one. He's the servant. And as a servant, He perfectly did God's will completely. But as a servant, they also rejected Him. And Peter says in verse 13, You disowned Him and you delivered Him in the presence of Pilate when Pilate had decided to release Him. Why did Pilate decide to release Him? Do you remember what it was? Was he trying to be just? Was he trying to be nice? Was Pilate a nice man? Certainly wasn't nice, was he? You know why Pilate determined to release him? Three times Pilate declared his innocence. He said, I find no fault in the man. And they pressed him. They said, he's innocent. He has done nothing deserving of death. And they pressed it again. And he said, I find no fault in this man. Three times Pilate sought to release him. But the Jewish leadership had Pilate in the corner. Because Pilate's rule, his governorship there in Jerusalem was really in the balance all they needed was one more riot and they were going to pull Pilate out of there. And they, he knew if he doesn't crucify Christ, these people are going to riot and he's going to be gone. Nero's going to have his head. So he crucified Christ in order to keep the peace. But Pilate had determined to release him. In fact, Pilate even went so far as to offer to release one of two people. Do you remember? Barabbas and Jesus. It was a custom to release one prisoner on that day. Which one do you want? Now, Pilate, in the back of his mind, is thinking to himself, certainly they're not going to ask for a man whom they know to be guilty, who is an insurrectionist, and in the insurrection committed murder. They're never going to ask for him. They're going to ask for the innocent one. These people will never request to put, to, to put free a murderer and to murder an innocent man. So he gives them that offer in order to try and sort of give them one last opportunity to not kill an innocent man. And you know the story. And so did they, which is why Peter's telling it to him again. You disowned the holy and righteous one, verse 14, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Now their culpability and their guilt in this is unbelievable. It's monumental and it's inexcusable. 
Not only did they condemn an innocent man, but they acquitted a guilty man in his place. You disowned. You wanted nothing to do with the holy and righteous one. Holy and righteous one. Holy one is a messianic term. Do you remember Psalm 16 back in chapter 2? You will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. Peter quoted Psalm 16. It's a messianic title. So now we have three titles for Christ. Servant, Jesus, and holy and righteous one. You requested a a murderer in the place of the holy and righteous Son of God. Now their guilt in this is completely unexcusable. Monumental in its size. You cannot excuse that away. You knew Barabbas was guilty and you traded instead the holy Son of God in his place and asked that a murderer be granted to you. And notice how, how straightforward Peter is in indicting them for their sin. These people just weeks, maybe a few months earlier, had stood in the crowd and shouted, Barabbas, when Pilate said, well, what do you want me to do with Jesus who's called Christ? And they shouted, crucify him. They wanted him dead. And they're responsible for that. After Pilate had determined to release him. And then Peter says, down in verse 15, but you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. You put to death the prince of life. The word prince is a word that means originator or author or beginner or pioneer of something. It's really not a reference to a, a, a ruler, a monarch type prince. It means the author of something. In Hebrews chapter 2, Christ is called the author or the prince of our salvation. Hebrews chapter 12, he's called the author of our faith, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the author of life. He's the giver of life. He is the, the beginner of all life. All life comes from him. And this, by Peter even mentioning this, he is ascribing to Christ deity because only God gives life. And only God is life. And so when Peter says he is the author of life, Peter is ascribing to him deity. He's saying he's the beginner and he is the source of all life. And you put him to death. Now, you can't keep the author of life dead, which is why Peter said God raised him up, a fact to which we're witnesses. We were there, we saw it. Just as these people whom he's preaching to were witnesses of the death and the trial and the mockery and the shouting of crucify him and all of that, Peter says we're witnesses, Peter and John, we're witnesses of the fact that God raised him from the dead. And so he could say we stand here and testify to you that he's no longer dead. Why? Because he's the prince of life. And you put him to death. Now Peter in verse 16 is about to move to really the central idea of the message as far as what he wants of these people, and that's faith. Verse 16 is all about faith. But before he does, he has to tell them about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. You can't expect people to put their faith in a dead Messiah. And so Peter asked them to place their faith in a Messiah who is risen, a Jesus who died, who is the Prince of Life, and he's risen. Before we go on to verse 16, I want you to notice something. Two things. First, I want you to notice all the names that Peter has given to Christ. Do you notice that? He is servant. He is Jesus. He is holy and righteous one. And he is prince of life. Four names. In the rest of the message, Peter calls him, gives him two more names, prophet and Christ. So he is Jesus. He is Christ. He is savior. He is servant. He is prophet. He is holy and righteous one. And he is the prince of life. Why so many names? Why doesn't he just refer to him as Jesus? Or just refer to him as Christ. You know why? Because the question is, who is this one 
in whose name this man has been made well. Who is he? Well, Peter just unloads it. He's Jesus, he's Christ, he's prophet, he's servant, he's holy and righteous one, and he's the prince of life. He's all that and far more. I think Luke has given us a truncated version of his message. I think it would have been interesting to see how many more titles Peter used of Christ. But the issue is, who is he? He's all of that. He's Jesus, which means Savior. He's Christ, which means Messiah and Anointed One. He's the Holy and Righteous Son of God. He's the Prince, the Author of Life. That is, He's God incarnate. He is God's servant, and He is the Prophet that Moses predicted. And when you get to that, second thing I want you to notice is all the intentional contrasts that Peter uses. Do you notice that He's the glorified servant, the servant Jesus? God glorified him. You don't think in terms of a glorified servant, do you? The point of being a servant is not to be noticed. Not to be glorified. To be behind the scenes. To be almost incognito. Out of unrecognized. Out of the way. Well, here's a servant who has been glorified. That just doesn't go together well. A glorified servant. The point of being a servant is to not be glorified. But with Christ, it's the exact opposite. He came to serve, and because of His service, He has been glorified. He's the glorified servant. The other intentional contrast there is that He is the delivered deliverer. You notice that? The people delivered Him over to Pilate. Well, He's the one who came to deliver them from their sins. And they delivered over the deliverer to death. And He is the holy and righteous one who was traded for the unholy and the unrighteous one, Barabbas. An intentional contrast, a paradox. And the fourth and last one is you put to death the Prince of Life. Intentional contrast. And Peter is putting those in, in stark pictures in order to illustrate for us and just bring to life exactly who He is. He's the Prince of Life. And by our sin, we killed Him. Now, verse 16, Peter's getting right to the whole heart of it. And on the basis of faith in His name, because it's the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, And the faith which comes through Him has given Him this health in the presence of you all. It's on the basis of faith in His name. Now, there's some question as to whose faith healed the beggar. Was it Peter and John's faith? Or was it the beggar's faith? Who had the faith that healed the beggar? Now, some people try and say it was just Peter and John's faith. Some people say it was just the beggar's faith. I think it was both. I think it's difficult to say it was just one. Obviously, Peter and John had faith that Christ was going to work through them that He was going to heal this man when they did what they did. They believed it. They knew. They trusted. They obeyed. They had faith. But the beggar, the same way. That's why Peter said to him, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Peter is asking that beggar to believe in that name. That's why Peter says, it's by faith in that name that the man was made well. He has health, and Peter's getting right back to where he started, not because of us, not because of anything we've done, not because of our power or our piety. The man has health only because he believed in the name of Christ. And it's on the basis of faith in that name that this man has been made well. Now Peter, in the second half of this sermon, as you're going to see next week, is appealing to them to place their faith in Christ. But he wants them to know the physical healing that he has received is only because he believed. It's only because he trusted in that name. And you and I are spiritually healed on the same basis, by the way. That's how salvation comes to us. It's not our own godliness that gets us into heaven. It's not our own piety. It's not our own power. Anything that we do that heals us spiritually. We're healed on the basis of what? 
Faith in His name. It's all trust. It's obedience. And it's believing in Christ. And that's what healed this man. We're going to move on to the rest of the, the rest of the sermon next week. Before we leave here this morning, I want to just bring one central idea sort of up to your mind. And I want you to keep this thing sort of percolating up in your gray matter for the next couple of weeks as we go through chapter four. The issue here in chapter three and chapter four is not the miracle. Understand that well. The issue is not the miracle. The, the religious leaders, the people, it's not the miracle that causes this conflict that you're going to see unfold in chapter 4. The religious leaders are fine with them doing good works. The problem is not that this man is made well. Peter and John are not arrested for performing a good deed. They can make men well all day long. That doesn't cause a problem with anything. The problem is that Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ, that's what got him into trouble. If he had just said, walk, everything would have been fine. But it's the name. They can't stand that name. And pagans and atheists and unbelievers today are fine with Christians if they want to work in a soup kitchen or start an orphanage or go to a hospital or do visitation or start a children's ministry or teach or do things for their kids or start an after-school program or a daycare center. Everybody's fine with that. It's the name. They don't want that involved. You keep Christ out of it and you, you have no problem with the world. But it's when you bring His name into the middle of it that causes the conflict. What has been most interesting to me in recent weeks, and let me give you, months actually, and let me give you a modern day contemporary illustration. This whole conflict over the faith-based initiative that President Bush is trying to bring to the forefront. What's the issue? It's not really taxpayer dollars. It's not, there's no problem with soup kitchens, orphanages and hospitals missions and drug addiction clinics, all of that's fine. Christians can work in that all day long. And as long as you do not use His name, as long as you do not point people to Christ, people don't mind giving you money. People don't mind you doing that. They don't raise a stink. But keep His name out of it. It's His name that they hate. It's Christ that they hate. And you bring Him into the middle of it, and all man is going to stir up a hornet's nest every single time. The world doesn't care if we do good things. Just don't do good things and try and get them to believe on the name. That's their problem. That's their issue. And that is what started here in chapter 4. Whose name have you done this in? If they had done it in any other name, it would have been fine. But not Jesus. Not the Christ. Not the servant. Not the holy and righteous one. Not the prince of life. Any other name but that name. Have you noticed how willing people are to discuss religion, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age. doesn't matter. They discuss any religion with you. But the minute you bring it back to the person of Christ, who is he? Then what do you see happen? Hostility, anger, resentment, unwillingness to discuss that. Whose name have you done this in? It's going to get us hostility. But friends, we can do no less. I mean, anything that you and I do that is good, anything that you and I do that is in obedience to the Word, we do in the name of Christ. So we cannot help but bring that name right into the midst of anything that you and I partake in. And that name will gain you a hearing among some people, as it did for Peter and John in Acts chapter 3. Because they did it in the name of Christ, there was a whole crowd of people that were willing to give them a hearing and listen to them. That name will gain you a hearing, but the name will also gain you hostility. Jesus said, if they loved me, they'd love you, but they hated me. And they'll hate you too. 
and you drag that name into the midst of it, you may someday find yourself locked up. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for who You are, and we thank You for who Christ is. And He is indeed the Prince of Life. He's the Holy and Righteous One. And we thank You that in His name we have the forgiveness of sins. It's His name that we preach. It's His name that we glorify. And we thank You that everything that we say and everything that we do has that as its foundation and that at the very heart. And so we are grateful for all that You have done for us in the name of Jesus. In Him, You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And because we have Him, we have everything that comes with Him. And it's all because of that name. Help us, Father, in the days and weeks ahead, this week, to not be ashamed in any way of that name. And it may gain us a hearing with some, and it may gain us hostility from others. But, Father, give us boldness and give us a love to honor and glorify that name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.